Welcome to The Structure Show. I'm Tom Krasett, executive editor of Structure, the company that brings you the most informative and useful events in the tech industry. Uh, report cards are due for the tech industry over the next couple of weeks uh, in the form of earnings reports, and today we'll talk about yet another quarter in which IBM earned a gentleman's C. Uh, there's probably a more appropriate term for that these days, but we'll roll with it for now. Uh, we'll also talk about a strategic shift at Mesosphere, one of the companies that wants to help manage the rise of containers as the next great thing in software development. And we'll round it out with uh, some discussion about Magic Leap, uh, one of the most talked about tech companies of the last couple of years, despite the fact that it really doesn't have a lot of publicly available details to talk about. Anyway, we've got Stacy Higginbotham of the IoT Podcast on the show today, and uh, make sure to sign up for Stacy's newsletter on all things Internet of Things at StacyOnIoT.com. That's Stacy with an E. Have you recovered from South oh. by Southwest yet, Stacy? Oh yes, that was that was months ago. Months. No, it was actually only a month ago. Okay, you're right. My so sense you, of time. You time... put it that far in the rearview mirror that you've, you've you've got it like almost into last year now. That's good. There we go. I mean, there's there's other events coming right up, so I, I gotta face forward. Uh, <laughs> good attitude. Well, well, let's get started with IBM because I don't know. Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised. Uh yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> one of the uh, one of the things about IBM is that we've just heard this story time and time again. I mean, so IBM reported declining revenue for. I believe it was the 16th straight quarter, and that is a that is a lot of quarters in a row um, to sort of nurse this, you know, kind of business through it. A turnaround that's, you know, they promise is just around the corner, but seems to always kind of be a little further around the corner than it might appear. And, yeah, I mean, like, we should, you know, really level in some perspective here. IBM uh, pulled in $18.68 in revenue, which is a rather large amount of money. Um, and they are, you know, still, you know, profitable as well. But th th this kind of revenue decline, this slow revenue decline is a very dangerous thing for a tech company because it's one of these things where it's like, oh, I'm making money. I'm still doing OK. But then all of a sudden, you know, everyone's deserted you as they move on to other technologies. And, you know, I sort of wonder, IBM pulled this turnaround off when they back in like the early mid 90s when it became clear that the Internet was going to change everything about computing and it finds itself in one of those other situations again, as the cloud and mobile worlds are changing everything we know about about computing again. I, you know, I'm just sort of wondering what it will take for IBM to get this around. Are, you know, are, is IBM the Yahoo of enterprise technology? So I don't think so. And I, I'm not sure who I'm ready to say it is, but <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. So what IBM has is at least a recognition that the world is changing and a plan for it that it's actually already implementing. And so, yes, four years of declining revenue, nothing to be excited about. When you're in a public stock market, it's it's terrible. But IBM has been investing heavily in cognitive computing, what it calls cognitive computing, what the rest of us would think of as AI or and machine Watson, learning. Just Watson. to use the marketing term. Right. So they, their Watson efforts are kind of a way to make AI dev-friendly and business-friendly, which they had actually started on all the way back in like 2008. So they've seen the way the world is going. They've started to adapt. They also have, they're one of the few tech companies out there that have a big hardware effort. Uh, 
Facebook is actually just establishing theirs. Amazon is, has established theirs. Uh, I don't really know. Google Google has efforts, but so far we're kind of like, eh. I would definitely give them a gentleman's C. So IBM with its efforts in like chips to under underlie machine learning and AI, I think that's really interesting. So there's a chance. It's just the business model that needs to happen and the, the change that needs to happen with IBM. That's going to be a lot harder for this company than anything else, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a whole... I do respect IBM in one fashion for trying to at least dig its way out with technology. You know, like that's kind of a, you know, instead of trying to like, you know, well, they certainly have been buying lots of companies and they certainly have been trying lots of, you know, business related accounting tricks and things like that. But, but you're right. I mean, IBM's one of their greatest strengths is, is, is all the technology that, that lies within that company. I mean, we, we've made a lot of fun of Watson in the past, but you know, there are some real strong, uh, people working on you know AI and, and machine learning over there that's that's manifesting itself through Watson, and if you believe Google's Eric Schmidt who thinks that AI is going to be the next layer for cloud services now that you know now that public cloud is established as a thing and it's not very controversial and people understand the value of it, features become the way that people will compete on top of that base need for cloud computing and you know IBM hasn't had a really compelling cloud story in and of itself. You know, since well, since forever, but you they know, they bought SoftLayer. Well, right, they totally did, and they know. had to buy their way into the cloud. Bluemix is actually, but they haven't even bought their... their way into the cloud. I guess it's like I mean, they haven't even really made a dent in in what Amazon or Microsoft or even Google itself has been able to accomplish. So, yeah, I mean, they're there, right? I mean, you know, points for showing up, but you know, you're not really. They're not. IBM is not having an impact on the cloud computing market. I think it could on the have cloud an computing market no yeah where I think they are striving to have an impact though is on offering a unified product I guess cluster with cloud computing pulled in right so instead of you doing it by going to Amazon and then building whatever IBM's like you know what here's your end game is you want to analyze your data you know what, just just tell us and we'll do it all. You don't have to go to Amazon and get your, you know, set up your own uh, Kinesis and AWS instances. You'll just come to us and we take care of it. I mean, that's that's always been their value proposition. They work and with there's... big companies. They, they, you know, they work with the kind of companies that don't want to, you know, take advantage of all the bells and whistles that you can configure with Amazon or Azure. You know, that if you're a startup, you don't do anything but Amazon, right? That's that. It's exactly what you want because you can customize it exactly for what you need. If you're a huge company, you know, GE aside, you know, who we had at Structure last year and talked about their love of Amazon, I think a lot of companies who just aren't quite as maybe forward thinking about their technology look at IBM and go, can you please just bail us out here and, and get us all set up for the next, you know, five, ten years? So I think the biggest there, risk... Right? I mean... Right. Well, and the biggest risk for IBM, so there's Azure on the, because Azure does provide the same sort of big company, high touch level of service will package everything up for you or Microsoft with, along with Azure. But I think what IBM's big challenge is going to be is that so far, artificial intelligence and bringing that machine learning into your business needs to be so far really customized. So you have to do a lot of work with your data to figure out how to 
how to basically train your machine learning to do what you want it to do. And offering Watson's, you know, capabilities as a service is kind of a little bit misleading because you may get that as a service, but you're going to have to like run your data through in conjunction with an IBM specialist in your own data scientist, or maybe IBM brings your data scientist and the bill is a little higher. Um, so I think that's the big risk is a lot of these bigger companies, they have their own data, they're building their AI into their own products, whereas IBM's trying to really let people build, like use IBM's AI to make their products better. And that's a really tall order. Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, I think some companies will buy into this, but, you know, it's the question that we, you know, sort of started off with is what is it going to take for this revenue decline to, you know, ease or to, to turn around? It's, you know, are the are the revenues from the new things growing fast enough to offset the decline in revenue from the old things? And, and you know, until we see no. the acceleration of the new things, the answer is absolutely no, right? I mean, it's just people are just walking away from the, that older area of technology more and more. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I find it hard to count out a company with that much. It's amazing how some of these old line tech companies can survive for so long. Cause they, you know, they've got plenty of cash. They've got plenty of, you know, they're still making money to some extent and, and, you know, they can hang around for a very, very long time. But, you know, at a certain point you really do have to turn things around. And I, I don't know. I, I don't see a path <laughs> to use the political uh, the, the phrase word of the of the year. You know, I don't see a path for IBM to you know the top of the uh, the heap here. But you know, they danced on an elephant twenty years ago. That was pretty cool and one of the most amazing you know business turnarounds of its time. So maybe they've got another one in them. Maybe I mean they are I don't know like a hundred years old. Hundred and thirty. Ten, I think almost. Hundred and ten. Yeah, like it, it's. Which is just an amazing thing in and of itself, right? That that a company that, you know, is that old in the tech industry, which, you know, companies that are 15 years old are considered, you know, geezers. You know, we're talking about a a company that's over 100 years old that's still more or less relevant. And, and you know, that in and of itself is something amazing. Uh, but let's yep. move on to a company that is a little bit younger. <laughs> Um, and that's Mesosphere. And we've had Mesosphere around at Structure before. Uh, CEO Florian Liebert appeared at Structure 2015, uh, promising one of enterprise technology's holy grails that his company's software could help public cloud customers avoid the dreaded lock-in that was such a fun part of the first wave of enterprise computing. And now Mesosphere is making a big bet on that strategy by open sourcing all the components of its so-called data center operating system, uh, in addition to Mesos, which was the open source project that sort of kicked out the whole thing uh, from the beginning and that, that got the company rolling. The idea here is that it can get you know this, this software into more hands and make money off of services around that and, and you know help help more and more companies I guess manage you know the, the challenge of, of, of containers and um, you know running all this software across data centers an extremely complicated, ways. And people, I think, as they adopt containers, start to realize how complex it can get very quickly. And so there's definitely seems to be a um, some some momentum here for their approach. But, you know, I, Stacey, I just wanted to get your sense of, you know, someone who's followed, you know, sort of the the rise of the open source vendor 
Um, you know, is there anything different or interesting, you know, about Mesosphere's move compared to some of those other companies we've seen do this in the past? Or, you know, are they just sort of following a playbook that you that you roll out these days if you want to be an enterprise software vendor? I think with the things they're open sourcing are things like their graphical user interface, their load balancer. Um, so things that kind of add a few features that make a developer's life easier. And I think that is becoming more common. You can't just say, hey, I have solved one one problem using this crazy arcane code and we're going to open source it and everybody can use it and a small, you know, a group of developers like lock onto it and are excited about it. To get real play, you have to make it easy for people to use. And I think open sourcing these things makes it even easier which is really important because as more people are involved in managing a data center, as those roles kind of, I don't know, morph, they could go up and down the stack from hardware all the way up to the application layer in a lot of ways, you need to make things easy. And if you want to get the community you need to have a truly successful open source business, you're going to have to do everything you can to kind of market to those developers. I was talking to the folks at Shippable the other day and, and we were talking about you know just sort of in general how containers have have changed the way people think about development and um you know not just development but deployment and and you know sort of the whole process of getting code into production and you know they're extremely valuable and wonderful in a lot of ways the speed the flexibility the the, the efficiency of containers as compared to virtual machines there's there's a lot of cool stuff obviously that has people really excited about containers but once you get into that world, it kicks off all these other problems of, you know, manageability, like just keeping track of all these different versions you've got running all over the place and all these different, um, you know, pieces of your code that, you know, you used to be able to have a, a relatively um, decent handle on because they just weren't in as many places. But with containers, it's spread out across, you know, across a whole data center. I mean, it's 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 so many different instances. And so many different um, things to keep track of that it creates all of these other problems that companies like Mesosphere are are hoping to solve. It's it's kind of interesting how you know benefits you know you make one kind of technology breakthrough and you realize this huge opportunity, and then this cottage industry springs up around helping you manage that big opportunity. Right. Well, anytime you make any anytime you add ease or abstraction to something as complicated as a data center or a huge scaled out application that's running in a distributed fashion, you're going to make things harder for someone else somewhere in the stack, right? And that's just, that's the function of having, I, I don't know if it's a function of having two worlds, like older systems, and you're still trying to tie everything together, and we're not totally bought into entirely distributed systems yet, or what, but it's, yeah, that's just the way things work. My sense was one. It was just like you, you start testing these things, and you have them in limited testing, and you know you run into a certain amount of like you see the benefits immediately, but the problems don't manifest itself. And then as you move this stuff into production, it's like oh god, we're screwed. Like I can't, like I can't keep track of any of these things that are happening. And so you get a lot of that good old you know rogue IT kind of thing where the developer is running all these things in a cloud somewhere that you know the company just doesn't necessarily know about and. Um, it seems like, you know, a lot of these products that are coming out now are really just designed to help companies get a hold of or you get a sense of what they're doing with respect to container development. Um, 
so where do you think Mesosphere goes with this at this point? You know, like, are there logical places for them to expand their their product portfolio? Or, you know, do you think they turn into more of a services company? Or is there a little bit of both to be had here? I imagine that they're going to continue their product development. Um, they're already part of, you know, the smack stack for the, the big data analytics crowd. It makes sense for them to, after open sourcing this, trying to kind of move either further up or down that stack um, in terms of functionality. We saw the, you know, Cloudera and Hadoop. Was it Cloudera or Hortonworks? One of the two, you know, did that. And so, I mean, that's just kind of an obvious way for them to go. So, you know, now that we've uh, exhausted the the possibilities of container development, at least for one week, let's talk a little bit about something that's that's way far out there in the future. And, and that's this interesting company called Magic Leap. Um, virtual reality has been a huge topic of conversation this year. And, and you know, I think one of the most iconic photos of the year and, and you know, probably of the decade, to be honest, was Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg strolling past attendees at Mobile World Conference who were all decked out in VR headsets in some sort of weird preview of our near future. You know, Magic Leap is a company working on technology related to this, and, and they're kind of fascinating in that they've raised uh, around $1.4 billion, but nobody really knows exactly what they're doing, which is and, uh, it's just so, kind of one of the very modern Silicon Valley kind of kind of idea. And, you know, Wired had a very in-depth look at the concepts behind Magic Leap this week and some of the history of virtual reality and all that. And it seems like the company is is basically building a, a more sophisticated version of Google Glass or Microsoft's HoloLens or some sort of you know wearable immersive technology that blends virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, you know, Stacy, you follow this stuff a, a little bit, I'm sure, in your IoT world. What do you think it will really take for this technology to to break through to people? So, I think, well. I'm not sure what it's going to take to get the technology to break through to people, but I will say that I am really stoked about virtual reality, augmented reality, and any kind of uh, what they called mixed reality. And I will tell you, it is because what we are doing, we're in the midst of turning all of our physical data into information, right? So our smartphones are a great example. You can actually track a person and real-time using GPS on their smartphone, right? And Uber takes advantage of that to get, bring you a car. So the big transition right now that businesses are facing is turning, taking advantage of the digital infrastructure to move physical atoms around really quickly. So that's that whole bits to atoms thing. What's cool about AR and VR is we're going to be having, we'll have the opportunity to turn some of those, those atoms back into bits and you won't have to actually move places and see things. And so fundamentally, that's why people are so excited about it and are willing to invest $1.4 billion into this company that is in Fort Lauderdale and nobody's seen their product, has no ship date, et cetera. It's why well, Facebook presumably spent... a couple of people have seen their product. I mean, they, they appear to have right. a product. They're just not really talking about it. And they keep, you know, dribbling out these little, you know, I mean, like Wired wrote a huge profile, but there is not a lot of detail involved there it's really just more of kind of a primer on the concept and and um some laudatory uh prose around the the whole idea um you know one thing i was kind of thinking about with with terms of virtual reality and augmented reality is whether or not 
you think that'll kind of go down the similar road that we've been talking about with, with respect to IoT itself, where, you know, maybe the consumer breakthrough happens after there's some sort of industrial application for it that that sort of works out the kinks in this technology? I think so. I think on the consumer side, the obvious place that most people are looking is entertainment. And by entertainment, I mean porn. Uh, well, that's what the so, internet is for. So that is that that is why we have it. So on the industrial side, though, there are already companies who are using less virtual reality, more augmented reality to, you know, repair equipment. You you can actually bring huge chunks of knowledge to like the field with AR and like even just a smartphone camera. And you can have someone in the field, like look at your car's engine through the right software on their phone. And they're like, boom, this is how you fix this, right? Um, so those things are already happening. Making that experience more immersive can only make it better, especially if you have the hardware. And, and this is the key. You're going to have to have hardware that's portable and cheap enough to deliver those benefits. Because right now, it will be hard to have a good ROI on a really expensive kind of kit for VR that that is only about, you know, overlaying more information. You're going to have to see, you're going to have to actually do something with it. And I don't think we've seen some the compelling stuff there yet. No, I think I, there's probably. I'm go sorry, on. go ahead. I think there's probably some really interesting applications in like really high end engineering, uh, things like the, the whole concept of digital twins. I will say though, actually in the consumer world, overlaying things on like house hunting and renovations might be interesting, but it doesn't need to be as fancy as kind of like a magic leap maybe, or even Oculus. Yeah. I mean, so. I think that's the, it's a question of how immersive you want the experience to be, right? And, like, if you look at, like, Oculus, like, that's a... I mean, it's like watching a movie in your own little private room, basically, or, or you know, being being playing a video game in, in some sort of, you know, cocoon. You know, whereas augmented reality, and it seems like a little bit more like what Magic Leap is working on is... You know, I, I don't know if you saw that there was a picture in, in their... Um, or a video actually in, in Wired Report where it looks like a kind of a standard lens for a pair of glasses. You know, and one of the things that, you know, doomed Google Glass for sure is that you just looked ridiculous wearing it. You know, and you look ridiculous wearing Oculus, but you don't really care because you're probably in your living room and you're just hanging out. You know, you'd be watching TV if you weren't, you know, in virtual reality. So you, you, the the appearance of it is, is a little less... Um, you know, problematic. But if you're doing augmented reality and you actually want to be wearing these things out in public or, you know, semi-public, at least in the workplace, you know, it, it can't be, it can't be that immersive. It has to be something that, you know, allows you to still interact with people without freaking them out or without, you know, losing communication with them. And, you know, the sense of like the industrial things, if you had a big old headset on and you couldn't hear your colleagues, like that would actually probably be a problem. So, you know, I don't know if this is one of those technologies where the hardware just hasn't quite caught up to where the software is. And I, I think for a long time, it's been the other way around with with some of our technologies where, you know, the software has just been, you know, pacing ahead of, of everything. And, and for this one, it seems like the, the idea is there, the hardware is not, the software is maybe there. And, you know, whether or not Magic Leap has that, that combination, it's, you know, we still still just don't quite know, but... 
Um, yeah, I think that's one other interesting thing to think about, though, is like whether or not augmented virtual reality type of devices will be totally vertically integrated, meaning that one company will build the hardware and software, or you know whether or not you'll see something a little bit more generic like the PC industry, where the the hardware kind of became commodified relatively quickly, and and you know the software became you know the applications became the way that you um, could really start to make money on that, and I. I don't know. I mean, I don't think virtual reality is anywhere close to that, given what we've seen from Oculus and and the, you know, this Magic Leap is still vaporware as far as we're all concerned. Um, but I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think do you think there's a like a, a clone VR future or is this something that's going to be a little bit more like the smartphone where, you know, the integrated model kind of rules the day? Well, I'm going to like there's a lot to unpack there. So there is. That's not totally fair, but still. I'll tackle it. So I think eventually, once you have the hardware set, it will become commodified because that's just how things work. I don't think we're at a place anymore where if you're Intel and you can license, you know, your architecture and then produce it, you're going to own that whole swath of the world. I think that's kind of long gone. That being said, I don't see... There's a, there's a couple things I do want to quibble with, actually, and this gets into this whole idea. Magic Leap, they, there's a lot that they don't show you, but there are things that they are showing you. And so calling it mysterious still, and I, I accept vaporware, but they look to be doing, because they talked a lot in the video and in the article about light field uh, in photonics. And what it looks like they're doing is very similar to Lytro and their light field camera, which is you take all the data that the camera can see, and then you process it later, right? So you're not processing as you're taking the image, which is how most sensors that are in cameras do it. Uh, and that creates an enormous amount of information that has to be processed. Uh, and so I'm actually really interested in, if you imagine taking a 360 view for like VR, that's at light field kind of... Uh, all that data that comes in from a light field camera, uh, that's astonishing to me. So it is not surprising that these guys are still, you know, heads down. They've shown off this magic clear wafer that they're like, this is a photonics chip that has nanostructures in it, or maybe it's tiny mechanical structures. So we don't know exactly how they're doing it. And there are lots of questions about, you know, do you need a supercomputer to parse all that data? Because that's a heck of a lot of data. That. Because, I mean, if you look at, like, the basic PC you need just to run Oculus, it's actually a pretty, you know, top-of-the-line fancy machine. machine. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that is going to hold back adoption of Oculus, I would think, because people just don't have those kinds of PCs. You, you need, like, a, you know, the, the best gaming rig you can buy. If this is something that's all along those lines where it does require that much local processing, I mean, I, it's certainly, I mean, you're not a wearable device if you have to have, or a, a mobile device, I guess I should say if you have to have that much computing resource at your beck and call. So I, I know, I don't know. I mean, like I, I've always felt with respect to magic leap that they have showed their investors a pretty deep dive of what they're working on under this most stringent NDA ever created. Um, and that, you know, there has to be something there that even if magic leap itself doesn't come together as a functional product, that there's at least some basic research going on here and some basic technology development that could be utilized in, a, in 
I mean, uh, countless other ways if it, if it proves um, viable. So, you, you know, even if Magic Leap doesn't come out with, you know, the Magic Leap glass, you know, 4,000 by, by the end of 2018, then, you know, at least they may have made some important contributions to some of these fields. I think the best contribution they'll probably, it, their, their secondary prize, their consolation prize, would be that they are researching, I'm guessing, a lot of the way the brain thinks and processes imagery. Right. And so if you can deliver a really high quality signal to your brain and have that parse, and your brain already does that. That's how we see today. You know, we get, you know, we cipher, our brain deals with all the, the excess information just by these nifty little tricks that we've all, we're totally unaware of. So if they can identify those in, help deliver high quality visual experiences without requiring crazy processing, that would be really amazing. I don't know if they're doing that, but that's another way to think about solving this problem. And maybe, maybe in the tech world, we're just like to, Hey, I'll throw more silicon at it. When in fact, we maybe should be thinking of different sheets. Right. And, you know, we're also a pretty jaded group who have seen, you know, well-funded companies promising the world, you know, come and go over the years. Fairness. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> you know, so, but it, I, I don't know. I, I, it is, for my mind, it is cool to see companies working on this type of research that even if it doesn't come out as a slick consumer product, you know, really could change the way that, you know, cameras work or sensors work or, or even as you say, the fundamental problem of how do you process all of that data quickly and efficiently. I mean, let's hope they've got something more to their, uh, more to their thing than really good PR-placed profiles. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks very much, Stacey, for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening as well. <laughs>